online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, Margaret River, still a relatively new region by historical standards, its distinctive wines have won a legion of fans, lured by that sweet spot of quality and price. So, what makes it special? And which are the wines to seek out? We'll find out with Ali Cooper, MW, and Libby Brody. The first vines went into the ground as recently as the late 1960s, yet the profile enjoyed by Margaret River in Western Australia would befit a well-established region in the fabled Old World. Producing around 2% of Australia's wine, yet accounting for 20% of its premium listings, Margaret River has won new fans the world over, seduced by the quality of its wines and the value that they still represent. No surprise then that the first in-situ assessment of its wines for the IWSC delivered a whopping 23 gold medals. So, what's driving its success? Master of Wine Alistair Cooper, a good friend of the drinking hour, of course, was in charge of the judging process. And Libby Brody also flew out. Uh, she's a wine communicator extraordinaire. And she was also one of the judges. And they both join us now. Uh, Libby and Ali, uh, welcome to the drinking hour. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Nice to be with you again. It's very nice to have you back. Now, Libby. You first, I think. Uh, for those unfamiliar with Australia's wine map, and it can be a bit confusing compared to some countries' wine maps, fill us in on kind of where we're talking about and what makes it different and special. OK, so Margaret River is on the southwest coast of Western Australia. So we're, we're that side of the Perth side. And it's quite a long strip of land next to the coast. So it's about a three-hour drive from Perth. And it's an absolutely stunningly beautiful region of the world. I hadn't um, ever been anywhere near that before. I'd done the um, East Coast that everyone does in their gap yards. And, uh, but I've never done the West Coast before. And it's this, uh, I think it's one of the world's 34 internationally recognised biodiversity hotspots, which I had no idea about before I went. But it was absolutely stunning. Tons of flora and fauna there. Lots of ocean influence too, Libby. Yeah, massive coastal region. Really beautiful. Yeah, it looks amazing in the pictures. I'm uh, yet to travel there. Ali, we're talking about a region that only saw its first vine planted a little over 50 years ago in 1967. Uh, first planting by Tom Cullity, uh, but um, an agronomist, Dr. John Gladstone, was a, a huge influence, I think, because he identified its potential. It's relatively new, certainly compared with some of the very old wine regions, but there's no question that it's on the global fine wine map these days. 
Yeah, no, no doubt, David. I mean, to, I, I certainly concur with the fact that it's definitely on the global fine wine map, but perhaps not as much as it should be. I would say. I think it's fair to say it's it's the it's the most premium wine region in Australia when it comes to average price of of the wines that come out of Margaret River. Um, there are very few cheaper wines produced here, um, and it's home to some of the most iconic Australian names. If you think of the likes of Mosswood, Vassar Felix, Cape Mentel. Cullen, Lewin, you know, they're all founded between 67, 1967, I think 1973. Um, and you compare those to some of the older, um, most established estates that we know from the rest of Australia, you know, Tyrrells, etc. that go back, you know, a, a long, long time. Um, it's quite amazing that some of the most iconic wines come from this, you know, this extremely young wine region in Australia. Um, it's also the most isolated wine region I think I've ever been to. I mean, if you think of flying from from Perth to Sydney is the equivalent of flying from, I think, London to Moscow, you know, and over there in, in Margaret River, you're a long, long way away from everyone. Yet the most amazing thing is that the lure of these world-class wines and the potential of of Margaret River re- pulled in some of some amazing people. Um, you know, let's think of Keith Mugford of, of Mosswood back in 1979, you know, and he was pulled over there from Roseworthy College. Um, I think he was lured by the surf as well. I think a lot of Australians are quite happy to go to Margaret River because of the surf opportunities there. But, you know, for such an isolated region, people saw the potential from a long, long time ago. Um, and I, but I do still think that some countries, um, I'd probably say the US would be one of them, aren't quite aware of the quality of these wines. I think the US have been traditionally quite slow to adopt Australian wines. It's happening more now. But the price, the, the, the sort of price quality ratio that you find in Margaret River is, is really quite astonishing. Yeah, Ali, there's an interesting figure. 2% of Australia's grape production, but 20% mm. of the premium wine sector. Yeah, exactly. And that goes to exactly what I said. You don't find many cheap wines here, but you find incredibly high-end wines. But still, they are remarkably good value for money. And we can probably touch on that a little bit later on when we, when we, um, when we go you know, deeper into, into the wines of Margaret River. But yeah, that's the, that is a very interesting stat. And I think um, that does settle, say a lot for the, for the quality that there is there. Yeah, turning the, the kind of modernity, uh, its recent history on, on its head slightly, Libby, I was uh, reading your piece about uh, Cabernet Sauvignon specifically, and we can actually officially classify quite a few of Margaret River's uh, vines as old perversely, because the generally accepted standard of an old vine is 35 years or older. Um, is that reflected in what you were tasting there? I think so, definitely. And you're completely right. We sort of think of Margaret River as a relative newcomer on the sort of world wine stage. But actually, as Ali mentioned, you know, the, some of these big hitters, these really renowned houses were planting late 60s, early 70s. So their vines are 40 years, some of them 50 years old. One of the things that many of the judges kept repeating over and over was this real concentration of fruit and how mm. I know this is a somewhat overused term, but the fruit purity that was coming forward in these wines. If you compare them to some of the sort of European wines that we have, even there seems to be a lot more freshness to the fruit there. Um, but the really real concentration from these old wines, you could definitely, definitely tell. And it's one of the main qualities that we sort of discussed to show the premium levels of these wines so that it's something that elevates them 
um, I think for Australia in comparison to other wines just across the world, these incredible old wines that they absolutely take so much care over them. That came up over and over and over, the actual care of the land, the care of their vines um, and how they work in relation to them. That was a fascinating part of being there, which I'm sure we'll come into in a bit. Yes, Ali, fruit purity comes up again and again in uh, the context of Margaret River. It does. And actually, it was it, it's quite hard to, to pinpoint exactly why that is. I suppose it's just an amalgamation of many factors. But when I was studying for the MW, um, the, I had certain descriptors for... I, I'm a big Cabernet Sauvignon fan. I think it, it maybe has fallen out of favour with some people over the years. But I, I've always been a huge Cab fan, and especially Margaret River Cab because of this, what I would call purity, plushness, sleekness, roundness. And those were the words for me that I that stuck in my head when I was, um, when I was studying for my MW. Those, those were my descriptors, this, this real purity of fruit that you get from, especially, especially cab, but actually, no, I would say with all of the red varieties, certainly you get this just distinct purity and, and energy as well. And um, I, it, it's difficult to explain quite why that is but um but it's a wonderful character um and it's a wonderful um advantage that these that these these wines have yeah how do you define um the style of cabernet sauvignon then ali for margaret river beyond obviously fruit purity and plushness okay i i would say yeah i'll go you know plush soft concentrated but not over blown um i call them this sounds a little bit wsct now but i call them medium bodied whereas if i was thinking of somewhere like napa i call them full bodied so medium bodied more akin to to the bordeaux style um very perfumed and elegant the tannin structure i think is something that really sets these wines apart that sort of goes in tandem with that purity element they're very fine grained powdery delicate tannins and they're, they're wines that are suited to long-term cellaring however what I love about these wines is that they're also very approachable in their youth um, and that is certainly something that you can't always say for Bordeaux so and I think that is an incredible um, characteristic that these wines had yes they can sell we tasted some wines back to 2003 and they're still youthful and elegant but still from the recent vintages with Cab they've been approachable and delicious. I think, so I'd be saying flavour, point of view, as you'd expect to find probably some cassis, blackcurrant, but there's also some red fruit, cedar, and bay leaf for me is something I often find there. And again, as we know, you know, pyrazine, methoxypyrazines, um, that sort of leafy character is part of the DNA of, of Cabernet Sauvignon, as well as Cabernet Franc, which also does very well in Margaret River. And I really love a lot of these wines have just a, a delicate smattering of, of these leafy pyrazines um, in the wine. So, yeah, I, I, it's difficult to compare them to to cabs from from anywhere else because they they are they are they are quite unique. Yes, and a, a beautiful array of descriptors there from you, um, Ali, um, Libby. I always think the word delicious is underused um, in the wine world. Uh, I'm not aiming that at you because you probably do quite frequently use the word delicious, actually. But would it be fair to say these wines are delicious? I would, I would definitely. I love that word because it sort of has a lip smackingness about it. Yeah. I think for me, one of the things that stood out repeatedly 
And I, I don't know Margaret River wines as well as Ali does at all. Um, but the one thing that kept standing out for me was this um, theme of a really succulent acidity. Um, but it was a real juiciness through all these wines, which I was quite surprised at. This, this, yeah, succulence to all these Cabernet Sauvignons and, and many of the other wines as well. Um, and if I may just touch on something Ali mentioned before about comparing the wines to Bordeaux, for example, um, one of the best, um, and I might be jumping ahead, so apologize if I am, but it's on a stream of consciousness at this point. Um, so we had this tasting at Noen Estate of all these Cabernet Sauvignons. And I found it fascinating because they were saying that they had a really sort of disastrous cold year. It was fine for the Chardonnays, really, but the Cabernet Sauvignons really suffered in 2017. Mm. And actually, what a lot of them had to do was to change how they were making their wines. And they all, so many of the producers that we met spoke about how it, it had obviously seemed like a disaster, but it gave them real confidence in their own winemaking techniques and their own vines growing, how they, how they worked with them. 2018 was then a stellar year and they were all absolutely delighted um, as they managed to double down on what they'd learned. One of the things they kept saying was that it made them really hone in on what Margaret River's identity was and mm. what the wine style was and how their Cabernet Sauvignons could be more ethereal, more graceful than perhaps these heavier Bordeaux style wines um, that potentially some of them were aiming to mirror in some way. And I thought that that was really fascinating to hear that there was um, a method and a reasoning about why these wines were coming across so fragrant and perfumed and ethereal and graceful and succulent and juicy and all of those, those beautiful and delicious things um, was actually sort of a turning point in 2017. Libby's touched on something really, really important there is that actually 2017 was a difficult year for them. However, and, and as you say, Libby, it made them think a little bit more about how they were making these wines because actually in that part of the world they've rarely had in the past 20 years bad vintages you know they've been they are blessed with a with a wonderful climate you know when some of the other parts of the of um of australia suffered and if i'm i might get this wrong but i think it was oh might have been 2010 maybe 2010 or 2011 there were these you know huge floods and problems all over australia good old Western Australia and Margaret River didn't struggle at all. So they, they haven't had, they, they, they've they been they're blessed with a pretty remarkable climate as well, um, which may make them sometimes, as you say, maybe, you know, perhaps they were resting on their laurels a little bit, but, but it sounds like, as, they, as you say, they were telling us in 2017, it really made them think, and some of those wines were wonderful as well. Yes, so from adversity came a, a, a new strength. We, we've mentioned uh, the B word, Bordeaux, and it's a difficult one, this, because in terms of climate, it's kind of continental, really, which Bordeaux isn't. But then we're talking about a really strong maritime influence, which Bordeaux has in, in spades. Um, so there are some parallels with Bordeaux. Obviously, we have Cabernet Sauvignon, we have Merlot, we have the Bordeaux white variety, Sauvignon Semillon. Um, Ali, what is the extent of the parallels that can be drawn with Bordeaux? Well, I mean, I think actually the, the climate's more maritime and Mediterranean than, than continental, but, but they, it's, it's an interesting debate. And when I first went to Margaret River in 2011, 2010, 2011, I can't remember exactly which year it was. I, you know, every winery you went to, you were told about the parallels between Bordeaux and Margaret River. And I actually was a little bit um, perturbed to be a too strong a word, but uh, I wanted them to sort of maybe 
talk a little bit less about those parallels because I think often it can be seen that you're trying to maybe mimic, hang your hat on something and say that, you know, we're the same as this, whereas actually I don't think they were doing that. I think they were actually just saying we we do have parallels, but I, I wanted them to maybe talk a little bit less about it because at the time, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm a huge cab fan, but at the, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon went out of fashion, you know, for, for quite a while. I think it's coming back now. And I think people fell out of love a little bit with the wines of Bordeaux. Um, and it all became about Burgundy and more esoteric varieties and natural wines and blah, 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 blah. So I was a little bit worried that they were hanging their hat a little bit on, on those parallels with, with Bordeaux. However, I'm so happy that they stuck to their guns because it would have been very easy to go left field and start planting all sorts of other wacky varieties and change their style and try and keep up with the Joneses and all these cool other regions like the Basket Rangers, Adelaide Hills, parts of Victoria, etc. where they're making these more, more, more modern funky wines. Um, and they stuck to their guns. And thank goodness they did because, you know, these are very, very viable um, wines on on the global fine wine stage so i'm pleased that they did that so i think i i'm i'm happy that they did stick to that when it comes to climate wise um yeah there, there are you know i think margaret bordeaux in a dry year that the climate is really very similar to 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 margaret river um it's maritime as you say it's it's hugged by the indian ocean on the north and the west the southern ocean to the south it's um it, it has incredibly, well, it has ideal grape growing varieties, conditions in many ways. So you've got heavy winter rainfalls, cooling sea breeze that we always hear about in, in the world of wine and how important that is. But it really is in, in tempering the climate. It's very, very important. And that is, of course, what you get in, in Bordeaux as well. Um, altitude, there's not much altitude here. We're looking at 40 to 50 to 200, 300 metres of sea, sea level. I think we'll probably be probably be about the most that there is um the rainfall falls uh mainly in the winter um they've got about the same amount of rainfall as bordeaux probably 1000 1100 low risk of frost which is great low diurnal temperature range um which means that they've got a very even growing season and i think the average temperature in january is around 20 21 january being the peak of their summer because it's of course in the other hemisphere so they have it, it's it, it's it's a very even climate, um, and there are definitely parallels to be drawn with with Bordeaux, which is why Gladstone recommended planting these grape varieties. And soil wise as well, there are, there are similarities as, as as well with Bordeaux. So yeah, I, I have mixed feelings about them being so you know ready to compare themselves with Bordeaux, um, but I understand why they did it. And actually, now looking back. I'm, I'm pleased that they did. And Libby, uh, Ali touched on soils there. What are we talking about here in Margaret River? Oh, sexy soil chat. Okay, so there's um, okay. So Margaret River basically has this massive ridge running down the centre of it from Cape Naturalist in the north to Cape Huin in the south, and that's made up of like, mainly granite, which gets me up to 600 million years old. So really old granite layered through with limestone, which I believe is sort of two million years old so most of the region is this red gravelly loam but with this quite complex network of schist and granite running through it and they're not a huge soil fan but that's the soils in that region soil chat tick ali uh, the growing season 
and the length of it, I think, is significant here in terms of ripeness. Yeah, it is. And 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 as you know, some of us, some of you may, may know, Cabernet Sauvignon's a late ripening grape variety, so it needs it needs a long dry growing season, and that's exactly what they get here. You know, most of the rainfall does fall in the winter. I think there, you know, there, there is the risk of a little bit of rainfall at, at harvest here, less so than there is in Bordeaux. Um, but it's very, very important. And, and the thing that I mentioned, I think I just mentioned it about the even growing season mm. is very important here. And it allows sort of gentle, slow development of aromatic precursors, flavor precursors in the grape, which which is which is very important. And, and that, I think, does actually come, come back to, you know, we've talked about plush, sleek, vibrant, um, wines and i think that is a lot to do actually with this gentle even ripening season and heat accumulation so often you'll find people talk about in the in the wine industry how important diurnal temperature variation is so it gets hot during the day and then it cools down at night time which means you can retain your acidity um and that is very important if you're in a very hot area or with high UV rays, let's think of uh, you know the Uco Valley in, in Mendoza or something like that, where you've got very yeah, high exposure to UV rays and high sunshine and the heat, and then it gets cold in the evening, which means you can retain these. But here, as it's so even, it does get hot during the day, but it doesn't need to get as cool in the night because it's not as extreme during the day. So that allows an even temperature. So you know this this I think we've it's kind of become programmed to believe that diurnal temperature variation is a wonderful thing. And in certain situations it is, but if it doesn't, if you don't get those huge peaks during the day, it's not as important to have the cool evenings as well. So I think that long, even ripening season is really important, especially for, for cap. Yeah. Really interesting point on diurnal range, actually, because uh, we tend to just wax lyrical about uh, the positives. Yeah. But they are, as you say, uh, relevant to where you are, of course. Totally. Um, now, we've talked about Cabernet Sauvignon a lot, and I feel we, at this point, must mention Chardonnay, Ali. Yeah, Chardonnay, without doubt. And this was, this is, obviously, Chardonnay is, is not, when we're looking at the parallels with Bordeaux, Chardonnay is not a great variety that we associate with Bordeaux. It's more Burgundy. So, you know, Margaret River River isn't a one-trick Bordeaux sort of pony imitation um, because it can also make world-class Chardonnay. I think, you know, I don't, I think I'm sort of correct in saying that it was the the Lewin Art Series Chardonnay that really became pretty, you know, very famous quite a long time ago. And historically, that was a, a... a Chardonnay that was sort of expressed the zeitgeist of, of, of Australian Chardonnay being pretty oaky, pretty rich, pretty heavy, um, but what, what people were looking for. Um, and Margaret River can do the oaky, richer styles very, very well indeed, but it can also make ridiculously elegant styles of Chardonnay. Um, one of the key things that you hear a lot um, when you're in Margaret River is that they have a particular clone of Chardonnay called the Jinjin clone, which they're very keen on, on telling you about. So the key with the Jinjin clone is that it has pretty low crops and it has small bunches and it gets what they call hen and chicken or meal rondage, which means that they sort of, um, you, you get some kind of uneven ripening, but it also means that you get smaller yields. Um, and these very small berries give you high concentration of fruit um, 
And they do seem to have a particular sort of steely acidity as well. And that particular clone seems to thrive in in um, in, in Margaret River. Um, and I think, you know, going back to the oak debate, um, one thing that I like very much is that they've adapted their winemaking styles so they can make those oaky styles. What we found, I think it was around 2006, there was a watershed in Australian winemaking, specifically with Chardonnay, which went from these very rich, batonage, oaky, diacetyl, buttery wines to they then swung the pendulum so far the other way to make these, what I, in an attempt to make chably style wines, if we're looking for sort of burgundy comparisons. So more acidity, they were picking earlier. And a lot of the wines that we found from Victoria specifically became these anemic styles mm. of Chardonnay early picked, which actually had zero flavour, if I'm being totally honest. They, they, they swung the pendulum the other way, um, and I understand why they did it, but I don't think it worked there. However, in Margaret River, they didn't quite do as much of that skinny, anemic Chardonnay style of winemaking. They sort of stuck to what they did. They reined in a little bit of the, of, of the oak, um, but they also started playing with other techniques, which came as well. I think if I'm, there was the Vasa Felix Hatesbury Chardonnay became, I think it was the 2010 vintage, um, was iconic in the fact that they started changing winemaking techniques, using more heavy solids in the ferment, making a more reductive style of wine, which um, sort of w- was a big change in the stylistic of in the winemaking style as well in 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 Margaret River. So they're capable of making all sorts of stars of Chardonnay, but the they always seem to have just the real purity. Again, using that word purity that we found in the Cabernet, but you also find it with the Chardonnay as well, with a succulent, as Libby said earlier on, acidity and freshness behind the wines as well. So I think you know part of that's to do with gingin, part of that's to do with with their winemaking, and of course a lot will be to do with their climate and their and their terroir as well. And Libby, uh, I saw what you wrote for Club O on uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, clearly a fan. Um, did Chardonnay find its way to your heart as well? Well. Typically, I'm a Chardonnay lover. I think it is one of my favourite grapes. It's my go-to. I, I think it's just absolutely delicious, shall we say. <laughs> but I, um, I, I absolutely you know, think it's a slight bugbear of mine using Burgundian as a descriptor because everyone does it. And I travel a lot, obviously, um, as you guys do and know, as a wine journalist, you're all over the place. And almost everywhere you go, if they serve you a Chardonnay, a winemaker will say and it's a sort of Burgundian style and it bothers me because I really would prefer if people sort of embrace their own identity um however having just said that I'm gonna do exactly that and basically <laughs> say um there was a lot of those sort of um that sort of class and elegance and skillful use of oak that you associate with some really fine burgundy that, that we saw there and I think there was as, as Ali described this lovely sort of reductive note to some of those wines and but for me that that again that succulence that fruit purity and but above all the skill of the oak usage it was there was nothing clumsy about any of these wines because obviously you can find chardonnay as sort of being beaten over the head but this was they were they were really fantastic with a finely tuned balance between flint and fruit so yeah absolutely uh fell for it in a in a serious way i think i I took more than one bottle of, I think, deep woods back home with me. So, uh, yeah, fantastic stuff. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like, you know, Cabernet is king, as they say. Chardonnay must therefore, let's say, be queen. They do produce a whole host of other 
uh, grape varieties, as so many Australian regions do. Um, there's plenty of Shiraz, but we've also got uh, Chenin Blanc, Vermentino, even Nebbiolo, uh, which is uh, notoriously um, tricksy. Ali, how are they doing with kind of everything else? Very, very well indeed. Whilst I, you know, I touched on earlier that I think they've they've done remarkably well to focus on what they do, what they do do so well, which is, you know, Cabernet and Chardonnay, as you mentioned, being 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 king and queen, so to speak. I think one one, and I'll touch on the others. Um, but of course, you did. I don't think you mentioned there, David Semillon and Sauvignon, which of course is a style that we we associate with 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 Bordeaux, Sem Sauv blends. And I think they do these very, very, very well indeed as well. I'm a sucker for white Bordeaux. Um, but what I do like is that they're not trying to mimic the Bordeaux style. Yes, there is. There are some wines that, that, that where they're using barrel fermentation and, and using oak with, with Semsoves, which I think works very, very well indeed. But it is a slightly different style. The Semillon seems to come through a little bit more over there with a real raciness. And I think the straight Sems as well are gorgeous. Again, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big Semillon fan a Hunter Sem fan. Uh, and I think that they have a, a specific style over there with lemon curdy kind type character that comes through in, in the Semyon as well and this waxiness. And as we all know, Semyon ages incredibly well. Um, Shiraz, yeah. I mean, Shiraz, again, I'm, I must be a fan of every grape variety because I'm about to say how big a fan <laughs> I am of, of Shiraz. But, but I am, you know, I do. You're quite, in the right job. Well, yeah. I am, aren't I? Yeah, I do, I do quite a lot in the Rhone. And um these are certainly not Northern Rhone style wines, um, but the Shiraz as well has a lovely, I'm going to say the word again, purity. It's a hallmark of Margaret River throughout all the great varieties, a real, a real drinkability, a purity, a liveliness, but always with that meaty, savoury pepperiness that you would want to find in, in or would hope to, I would hope to find in, in Shiraz. And yes, they're also making some other slightly, well, there is Chenin Blanc there as well, which they do very well. Vermentino, Nebbiolo, of course, they're, they're definitely minor grape varieties, but it also is great to see this innovation. So while sticking to your guns as a wine region doesn't mean that you can't experiment, and that's the beauty of the new world. That's the beauty of Australia where they can do this. Um, so, you know, the focus is definitely on king and queen, but the sort of prince and princesses are also doing very, very well indeed if we're looking at the other grape varieties. So I, it's nice to see that it would be boring if it was just Cab and, and Chardonnay, right? So I think it's yeah. great that they are doing these varieties and, and doing them well, but not trying to be too natural and wacky. They're still doing it in that sort of, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty funky place. You know, it's surfer central and, and, um, and they, 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 they like, they like living out there. So they have a lot of fun and parties, but they, but they're not trying to push the boundaries of this natural style of wine too much, which, um, which I personally appreciate. Well, I'm a major sucker for uh, a Bordeaux white blend. So um, I need to get my yeah. chops around some Margaret River uh, white Bordeaux uh, style wine. Well, I, Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, I should say, because I'm, I'm, as you say, I'm sure they're not aping um, Bordeaux um, because, uh, yeah, they, they are just amazing great varieties in, in the right hand. So I need to, uh, yeah, I need to get to know those wines. Um, there's something about Margaret River. I've, haven't been there and i haven't tasted anything like uh, what you've both uh, tasted because i wasn't there judging but every time i try a margaret river wine i'm impressed and i want another one i don't blame you for that i think that they they are that that sort of drinkability um which you don't always find with 
other regions. And again, this is, you know, maybe a, maybe an advantage it's got over Bordeaux, you know, that it, that it looks up to. And, and, and there are many parallels or similarities between the two. Um, the wines are far more drinkable at an earlier age. Um, you know, again, I'm a big Bordeaux fan, as I keep saying, but I think, um, you know, they, they are wines that, that um, invite you to have another glass or even bottle if you're named David Kermode. I think they managed to sort of have an elegance to them without being austere. Um, mm. I think that they are very classic, obviously great varieties, they the king and the queen, but then there's nothing um, too grown up about them. They are very fun and enjoyable and pleasurable wines to drink. Um, I'm with you on the Shiraz there, very flavorful Shiraz. Mm. I think we gave a, a gold to Castle Estate, who are lovely people as well, 2018. Oh, yeah. And they, that was absolutely delicious. The, the Chenin Blancs, I will say, confused me because I love a South African Chenin Blanc and, um, and Loire Chenin Blanc as well. But I tried, I think, I don't know, three or four at different, you know, not judging, just trying about that. And they were all so different. I was actually asking the producers, what is the style here? What is, yeah. what is Chenin Blanc in Margaret River? Because the others, I think, we can sort of give some common descriptors. The fruit, the succulents, the acidity, the flavour, the you know, the elec was there. But the Shenans were so different. So I would be very curious, um, going forward with Margaret River and the wines I'm gonna to continue to taste to see what happens with Chenin Blanc specifically and if it sort of hones itself down into a particular focused style. I actually found exactly the same as Libby, and I think I think Chenin Blanc actually has been planted, if I remember correctly, there's Historically, they did plant a bit at the beginning, uh, so I don't, I don't think it's a great variety that they've suddenly gone. Oh, we're going to plant Chenin Blanc because South African Chenin Blancs are doing well, etc. Or, or we love. I think it has been there in a minor capacity for for, for, for quite some time, but I, I I couldn't find a stylistic common thread behind the wines. Um, but you know that's no bad thing it's okay sometimes to have to have different styles and 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 for people to express this great variety in in in, in different ways so no i i i agree with with with, with libby on that yeah interesting point maybe that thread is yet to be sown into a style um but ali from your position uh in your throne overseeing the judging process what was your overall sense of quality you gave a lot of gold medals all of those will have had to have uh, past your lips uh, so clearly you were uh, you were pretty happy I was pretty busy too because we gave so many medals so it was uh, yeah I was, I was certainly kept busy on my uh, on my stool actually it wasn't a throne it was okay. more of a stool but no it, well no it wasn't it was very comfortable overall quality you know quite remarkable um, and I think it, again what, what's fantastic when we are judging in situ um, as we we did in Margaret River is the context that you get, we were judging as well with some fantastic local judges um, and as well getting their their input and their thoughts. And as you know, with the IWSC, when we're judging, it is there's, there's no egos. It's very much about conversation. It's very much about discussion. It's very much about listening. It's very much about learning. And um, and that that is a very important part of it. So I think the fact that we were judging there as well you know, really helps give context and, and allows you to focus on on the region and on the wines that you're tasting. And that that context, we get some, you know, we get, we had a lot of entries. Um, and as you say, we did have a lot of gold medals, a lot of silver medals. Um, and the 
without doubt the quality was was really quite remarkable um we've yeah the entries were high the quality overall exceptional actually is the only word i can i can i can use because it it, it that, that that's how it was well we're going to reflect on uh the uh, top medals um, at the end but we should talk about some producers here because there may be people listening who are very familiar with Margaret River wines but there will also be those um, for whom Margaret River is something new something to discover so um, based on what you uh, tasted of course you tasted blind but then you knew the identities afterwards and based on where you visited who should we look out for? Uh, you can both take this question. Maybe you first, Ali. There was one man that, that really stood out, <laughs> and that was Larry Cherubino. He seemed to do, well, he didn't seem to do, he did do extremely well indeed. When I was handing out the awards at the award ceremony, he just kept on, he should have just stayed on stage, really, because he kept on coming up. He makes the wines for, for Robert Oatley, as well as Cherubino wines, and um I was very, very impressed with with him. Actually, and and do you know what the Shiraz that, that Libby mentioned earlier on, the Pasel Estate, they um we had dinner together one evening with Wendy, I think it was the the, the owner, and um and I was yeah, I, I was super, super impressed by by that as an expression of Shiraz as well. But there's just the general quality throughout was was remarkable. So I we had uh, we visited Cullen, which is obviously one of the big well known well not big but you know very well known one of the first established there, and uh, their commitment to biodiversity and biodynamic work is is phenomenal. I mean we went and walked around their grounds and they were absolutely stunning. We had lunch and they were some of the most delicious delicious wines. I just going to keep using that word um, that I've ever tasted. And I think that, I mean, Margaret River was sort of founded by a bunch of hippies. Uh, they were sort of founded by, you know, hippies and surfers. And that, so it's no massive surprise that that sort of mentality is carried through in that sort of care of the land. There's a lot about um, the Aboriginal calendar coming into it and the respect of their, their heritage and history and that, that side of it as well. Um, but I thought Cullen's wines were fantastic. Um, and also um, Stella Bella. They did very well with their their Chardonnays and stuff. These were really great. But I was also really, I really appreciated seeing some of the, the newer, more up-and-coming producers. Um, I wish I could name some off the top of my head. I can't. Um, who are doing the sort of Italian varietals that we discussed as well and trying more experimental wines and low-intervention wines. And that was quite quite heartwarming to see. Um, and Deep Woods and Voyager as well for me were some totally. fantastic wines. I mean, I mentioned Deepwoods before because they had a 2016 at one of the dinners that was mind blowing, and um, and Voyager did very well in the awards as well. In fact, I think they won the Semillon Sauvignon blend as well. I think they got a gold for that. I think it was they them. did. They did. They they were very good. I think we must mention as well, or I'm going to mention as well. We judged in a in a wonderful estate called Claro. And mm. um, and they also won a gold with their their cabernet. I think it was yeah their estate cabernet, which was which was very good. But there's so many names that we can mention: Piero, Fraser Gallup, um, again, well Cherubino, of course, um, Evers and Tate, Stella Bella again that that um, Libby touched on. Yeah, those really beautiful expressions mm. of Chardonnay at really wonderful prices as well. So no, just just all over some some incredible producers 
Well, that's my yeah, thing as well. And- but as you say about the prices, the value is just incredible. The value yeah. you get there in comparison with the rest of the world is, is it's the quality and the, the level of care and work that's gone into these wines. But I am... Um, yeah, I think maybe we have to give less gold next time if we have to name every single producer. <laughs> yes. Tell me about it. Yes. Um, <laughs> I was about to say the same as you, Libby, actually. Um, the value ratio here, when you look at, yes, these are premium wines, uh, but when you look at the ratio of you know quality to price, what you're getting is pretty remarkable, isn't it, Ali? Uh, 100%. Um, and I think that is something that that that, that's a message that really needs to get to get across i think something that that staggered me and i talked about these they're wines that drink well in their youth but they can age very well indeed we had a little mosswood tasting and we tried a couple of older vintages i think we tried the 2003 and the 2005 really absolutely stunning wines that were showing just beautifully you know wines that are 20 years old i was so excited by these wines that I looked online to see how much they would cost back in the UK for, you know, an age vintage, 20, 20 odd years old. And I think they're about hundred pounds for a wine, you know, of world-class quality, a 20 year old vintage from a fantastic thing for a for hundred pounds. Um, you certainly wouldn't be able to find that with, with some other Bordeaux's, you know, to be able to buy aged wines at that price. Um, so I think that they, they, they're, they're very keenly priced. Um, there are some exceptions with some expensive wines, you know, that I would say possibly too expensive, but largely they are, they offer phenomenal value for money. Um, and again, as I'm going to say it again, wines that drink well young, but will also have, have great aging potential and very few because there's so many screw caps that they use over there. They're very much a screw cap, um, loving country region. Um, very few faulty wines as well, which is, you know, if you're going to buy wines to age, that is actually a huge plus for me because I'm sure it's happened to you, David, Libby, mm. certainly happened to me, pulling the cork on something that I've been, you know, patiently aging for 10, 15 plus years sometimes. And I'm actually dreading Christmas this year because I've got a few wines that I really want to pull out and they've been sitting in the cellar and I've been trying to come up with a time to drink them and I've decided this year's the year. And, and, and there's sort of an element of, of real edginess behind it, because I don't know if they're going to be caught. I don't know how they're going to have aged. Um, yet with the screw cap, I do feel far more comfortable that what I get is going to be a fair representation of what the winemaker wanted me to have. Yes, absolutely. Big up for uh, the screw cap, even if it's not quite as romantic opening it. Certainly less of a pain in the arse to open. So um, it is than, than an aged Bordeaux with that uh, cork anxiety extending to actually managing to open the bottle, let alone um, what's actually well, yeah. in, uh, delivering the, uh, the contents. I've had uh, many a, a whoopsie trying to open and aged bottle of wine um i need a sommelier really a personal one so that's an ambition anyway uh, larry cherubino by the way a previous guest on the drinking hour episode 43 if you're curious and didn't hear it because uh we've heard a lot about him and his frequent visits to the awards stage it's uh, a region i'm dying to go to Uh, you've really sold it um uh, both of you um as i said the wines are just continually uh, impress me i'm not just saying that they just really do um so um ali and libby uh thank you so much for taking out the time to um, extol the virtues of margaret river thank oh, you yeah. so much for having us yeah thanks for having extol. us
look forward to the next one. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. Well, if that has inspired you, let's hope it has. Let's round off with some medal winners to try from that judging process that happened in the region late last summer or late last winter for them. Uh, More than 230 medals were awarded. As I mentioned, 23 golds, 11 for Chardonnay and 10 to Cabernet Sauvignon. So almost an even split between the two dominant varieties there. Highlighting a few of those gold medal winners, starting off with a couple of the top scorers, a gold and 97 points went to Stella Bella Wines for Luminosa Chardonnay 2022. Here's what the judges said. Brilliant winemaking on display here. Powerful, driven and yet perfectly managed with notes of oyster shell and delicate nuttiness. Flint and struck match are balanced by vibrant salty fruit, shaved fennel and refined oak. Layered, structured and skillful. Also winning a gold with 97 points. Cape Naturaliste Vineyard. Torpedo Rocks Reserve Cabernet Sauvignon 2018. The all-important tasting note, the nose is redolent of violets and summer fruits with hints of sage and savoury eucalyptus. A succulent and powerful palette of poised cassis and red berries, pink peppercorns and supple tannins with a gorgeous refined star anise spiced long finish. One of the producers, Cherubino, received an impressive four gold medals for their Chardonnay wines, including Dijon Chardonnay 22, uh, Gingin Chardonnay, Pemberton Chardonnay 22, and this Cherubino Chardonnay 22. Uh, The tasting note, the nose is smart and restrained, offering pristine aromas of red apple, pear and white blossom. Deliciously voluptuous on the palate, showcasing an impressive interplay between vibrant acidity and the concentrated phenolics, making for an impressively linear yet rounded mouthfeel. So, wow, well done to Cherubino for those four gold medals. And then uh, when it came to the trophy judging, a separate judging session uh, representing the best in show, really. Uh, This was conducted in London uh, back in the autumn. Uh, I was lucky enough to be there. Uh, There was further success. Margaret River standing out as the most decorated wine region, earning four trophies for its red wines. Clairault Estate Cabernet Sauvignon 2020. Passel Estate Lot 71 Reserve Syrah 2018. Evans & Tate Redbrook Estate Cabernet Merlot 2020. And Robert Oatley, The Pennant. Cabernet Sauvignon 2018, and here's the tasting note for that last one. Alluringly delicious aromas of black fruits, coffee and clove spice, with a dense and generous palette of savoury notes and peppercorns, backed with vibrant and fine-grained supple tannins, fresh acidity and a long and persistent finish. Full of life, said the judges. Well, thanks to 
Margaret Rivers' success. Uh, that was also a long and persistent finish to this edition of The Drinking Hour. Uh, so many medals to cover. I really hope you enjoyed our discussion. Uh, I certainly learned something new about uh, this uh, really exciting region. And thanks again to Ali and to Libby for sharing their enthusiasm. And thanks to you for your company. Until next time, goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.